Welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show, everybody. Jim Marty here. For a change, I'm uh, face-to-face with my partner, Larry Mishkin, here. We're at the Hoban Law Offices in Denver, Colorado. How are you doing, Larry? I'm doing just fine, Jim. Always a pleasure to see you and to be in uh, Colorado. Thanks to uh, Bob and the gang here for giving us some office space and allowing us to tape the podcast today. we got to get him on one of these days. He was just at Plain in the Sand. And uh, sent me some good reviews about it. It's nice to get out in Colorado and uh, kind of be at the heart of where things are and uh, have a chance to see everybody out here. We've kind of teased this before uh, on some of our prior podcasts, but today's uh, a really special show for us. And whereas a lot of our guests up to this point have primarily been people uh, involved in the marijuana industry and all very good guests, we do have a second side of our show, and that's, of course, the Grateful Dead component of it. And today we are, are very, very lucky to have with us on the show a gentleman named Jay Blakesburg. Jay uh, is, uh, among other things, the official photographer for the Dead, works with other jam bands, is probably as close and tight into the scene as anybody, and uh, we're just thrilled to have him. Jay, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And I also just got back from playing in the sand. Oh, okay. So there, so now... now I heard it from him, and now I'm hearing it from you. Was it as good as my partner told me it was? Yeah, it was super fun. Uh, new resort, new new venue. So CIDs, you know, trying to figure it all out, but they are incredible hosts. Our friends at CID Entertainment and CID Presents, they really, really know how to take care of their customers. They're, they're you know, because everybody at Playing in the Sand is a VIP. And uh, they take really good care of us, and they make sure that we have everything that we need Everybody has a lot of fun down at Playing in the Sand. So uh, I've only been back for three days now. I guess this is day three. Back into, as they, as the kids say, I-R-L in real life. We've left fantasy land of, of Cancun. All right. What was, your, uh, what was some of the musical high points of Playing in the Sand? There were actually many musical high points of Playing in the Sand. They played really solidly all three nights. Uh, there was a great help slip St. Stephen. I think they ended out the show later that night with the Franklins. They sort of did a little bookend where they opened up the first night with a Not Fade Away, and they finished the last verse of Not Fade Away as the encore the last night. You know, they played lots of great songs. Um, the set lists were great. You know, we got our Scarlet Fires and our China Riders and our Uncle John's Band and The Wheel and you know, St. Stephen the 11, et cetera, et cetera. So it was interesting. No, no broke down, no Jack's draw, no sugar mag, but solid, solid, solid all the way through. John was in a great mood. Bob was in a great mood. It was very, very windy the first couple of days uh, that we were all down there. First show was incredibly windy. Second show was 
very windy, but not incredibly windy. And then the third show was the kind of wind finally died down and we got a little bit of uh, a breather from that intense, you know, 20 mile an hour wind constantly blowing. But it was great because it was blowing Bob's hair and it made him look like Moses, you know, getting ready to throw the, the, the tablet down to the, the masses below. <laughs> now, did that wind mess with the sound? You know, I did hear from people out there that it did depend on if you were if you were closer to the ocean, it messed with it a little bit more than if you were in closer to the to the dunes. But you know, most of my sound experience is just coming right off of everything on the stage, so I hear it differently than than most people. So I can't speak to that firsthand that it was swirling around but i actually did talk to the sound man a little bit about that and i think he told me that yes it does swirl a little bit but it's a pretty powerful system and it kind of tries to cut through it and make it all work so let's let's turn the clock back a minute here because one of the things that, that jim and i always like to explore with people is what, what got them into the dead when did they first get into the dead and i know from having spoken with you previously that you made your way into the dead world through a show that uh, has a pretty special place for a lot of deadheads out there and that was the english town show in 1977 that is correct you know you typically get turned on to music at that age i was 15 uh by an older brother or sister or a neighbor or a friend who might be a year or two older and you sort of gravitate towards, you know, what they're listening to. But I also truly believe that most deadheads and jam band fans are kind of born with this little strand of psychedelic DNA that sort of predisposed us to like wanting to have that kind of experience uh, musically and culturally and, and uh, you know, with other like-minded weirdos. And also in the 1970s when we were teenagers, I mean, we pretty much lived for sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, and you know, the Grateful Dead scene sort of fit the bill. So it was a good, you know, it was a good thing to look forward to that experience. And, you know, you, you pretty much had your drugs and, you know, the rock and roll was in front of you if you bought a $7 ticket and you hoped and prayed that you had to get some sex. But, uh, you know, <laughs> but that's... You know, it was a pretty simple mentality. You know, we didn't have the internet to, to teach us how to live our lives back then. We had to figure it out on our own. But yes, you know, I had an older sister and I was 15 and she was 17 and she took me to English Town and it was the first Grateful Dead concert for many, many East Coast deadheads or, you know, Northeast deadheads and 100,000 plus people and 105 degrees and contained now as a Dick's Picks, I believe it's number 15, is that correct? And tr truly, truly, truly one of the most epic uh, shows. I mean, you know, there were so many great, so much, so many great moments in 77. And this is obviously later than the, the highlight of the May 77 year. But, you know, back in October. So one of the reasons we're on this podcast right now is because uh, also I have a new book that just came out in the fall called Jerry Garcia's Secret Space of Dreams. And when I was in New York in the fall, doing some promo for that with Sirius XM. They let me do like a little Jay Blakesburg guest DJ. And I told stories about specific shows and the photos that were in the book and that played music. And uh, I said to them, can I close out my show with the He's Gone, Not Fade Away from English Town? And the, the audio tech for the Grateful Dead channel, a great guy named Andrew Brass, you know, pulled it up in their system and looked at it and said, you know, it's 40 minutes long. And I said, I do know it's 40 minutes long. And it's truly a legendary He's Gone, Not Fade Away. And the jam in between those two songs is just next level. 
goosebumps, hair on raised on the back of your neck. Gotta gotta just groove to that. It's just truly, truly remarkable. So yeah, English Town. Boom. Done. Fifteen. Life changing. Did you take pictures at that show? No, I did not. I was I think there was an Instamatic somewhere in our camp because there's a picture of me sleeping on the ground during the day in the hundred degree heat with a bong on my chest. <laughs> the only known photo of me at English Town. So, yes, more on English Town. Certainly, I've listened to that show many times, and, you know, 77 is a standout year for the Grateful Dead, and a lot of people say it's one of Jerry's best years, if not his best year. But um, some of the things that you hear about English Town was that it just jammed up the roads for miles around. They they were not set up for 100,000 people. They were, weren't even set up for half that amount, and so people had to walk for miles and miles to get to the show. Can you fill us in with some of your first experience? Well, I mean, I was 15, and that would be, you know, four score or, you know, two score, I guess, as a score 20 years. I, I, I know we parked. I know we walked. I know there were people selling parking spots in their driveways. I know it was hot. I know that probably every single ounce of beer in the convenience stores in that town were sold out. I know we got in early. I know we got a spot that was not too close but not too far. I think we were, you know, before any of the delay towers. And uh, so, you know, maybe a hundred feet back or something. I didn't really know a lot of the Grateful Dead repertoire at that point. I mean, I certainly knew when trucking was going on that, you know, that was a, that was a hit song, the new hit song by the band, the Grateful Dead trucking off the record, American beauty. But it was also a live radio broadcast on WNEW, uh, which was, you know, the big New York station at the time. So that tape, that soundboard tape circulated for many years before it became a Dick's pick. And, but the one thing about it is, is that they cut the broadcast before the encore, which was Terrapin. So nobody really heard the encore. I mean, if you were a taper and had an audience version of it, but the soundboard tape off the radio and, you know, back in those days, everybody would, um, you know, tape live concerts off the radio because that stuff was rare, right? And so I had that tape and I wore it out over and over and, you know, would get new copies. And I feel like I had like a, um, like a master copy that I never played. Uh, and then when the other one wore out, I'd go back to that one and make another copy and just kind of did that for a couple of decades until it finally showed up. Um, but, uh, yeah. And just one of those moments. Let's talk about your new book. This is not your first book, I believe. What, what number is this? Uh, Jerry Garcia, Secret Space of Dreams, is technically my 15th coffee table book. Wow. Of my music photography. I've done books on The Grateful Dead, and I've done books on the band Primus, and uh, the Flamey Lips, and the Mother Hips, and did a book for a guitar manufacturer and I've done multiple books for the lock and music festival. And those books are compilation books, you know, the, the lock and books, there's three of them for the first six years, but you know, 80% of the photos in each one of those books are mine. So I'll consider them my books. So yeah, I've done, I've done a number of books um, on a number of different artists and compilations. I did a book called Jam. I did a book called Guitars That Jam. I did a book called Hippie Chick. I did a book called Eyes of the World. I did Fare Thee Well, which was, you know, a book that came out after those final Fare Thee Well shows and just represents those five shows. Uh, I like making books and I self-publish them all. So Jay, when I, when I was visiting you recently, I think you told me that on your system, 
you, you, you store somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.5 million images. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's a little bit more than that. Maybe another 150 or 200,000. I think we're up to, you know, but yeah, somewhere around that, just over 1.5 million. It's a lot of data. It's a lot of data to be responsible for. And it's just, you know, it really is, um, you know, one of those things that you just got to, you know, handle with care and, and treat it like a precious. It, it, when you want to do a book, though, how do you decide which of those 1.5 million images? I mean, obviously, you come up with a theme and you look for pictures that fit the theme, right? Well, you know, if you're doing a book on Jerry Garcia, you don't have 1.5 million photos to look through. You know, you might have 2,000 photos that have Jerry in it that you're looking through. And you, you, what you do is you look at every single one of them. You know, when I did my book on Hippie Chick, which is a book about women and their connection to live music, you know, I thought I would go through everything I could remember where there were pictures of fans in the audience or out in the field or whatever. So, you know, you'd start with your start with your music festivals that you've been to and, you know, what you might have shot at those festivals. And then you go and you'd be like, oh, yeah, I remember that shot I took of that girl raging on the rail at widespread panic at the Fox back in 2009. And then you go down that rabbit hole that takes you a half a day and then it takes you to the next rabbit hole and. Eventually, you have to go ask Alice where you are, and um, you know you come up with a few thousand photos, and then you just start narrowing them down, and you give them to your designer, and you let your designer make choices. You know, you say, "Here, I've got these five photos, and I think any one of them can work on the page," and then they can put in their two cents, and it's a collaborative thing. But yes, you start with, you know, many thousands of photos. I mean, with Fairly Well, it was a five-show run, plus a rehearsal, plus a few other little things. You know, we went through all the photos. Um, you know, there was probably 20,000 pictures to go through. and um, But you're looking for the best of the best. So a question on um, how you were able to make such a long and successful career out of this. Between uh, 1977, your first show, when was it that you were able to cut the cord to become a, a full-time rock and roll photographer. Did you ever have a day job? Uh, yes, I did have a day job. I think my last day job was in the late 1980s. So I, 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 I first photographed the Grateful Dead in 1978. I first got paid money for my photography in September of 1979. I was paid $7.50 a piece for two photos, $15 total for two photos of the Grateful Dead that ran in a review of the Grateful Dead at Madison Square Garden from the January 79 shows. And um, I was 17 years old. I didn't really start making money as a photographer until I moved to the Bay Area. And I'm going to say that was around 85 or 86 that I started making just a little tiny bit of money. But, you know, we're talking about my, you know, I think I still had a job in 86. I worked at a small video production company. Uh, doing corporate type training videos and stuff like that. Uh, I believe it was in um, I believe it was in '87 that I actually cut the cord and quit my job and became a freelance photographer. And I feel like my first year as a photographer, I made about nine thousand dollars. That's not what I made. That's what I grossed. You know, I had expenses out of that. So um, I was what you would typically call a starving artist. You know, I lived in a big house in Oakland with six or seven roommates, and rent was a hundred and thirty-five dollars a month. And you know, we put in ten dollars a month, a, a week each for food, and we ate communally. And and I took every single little shitty, crappy, two-bit job that 
paid $100 or $200 or anything anybody wanted to give me to take pictures and um, just kept doing that. But I think that the biggest, my biggest driving factor was fear. I didn't know any other thing that I could do in my life. I didn't, you know, I wasn't the kind of guy that was going to go back and become a lawyer or an accountant like my father and my brother or, you know, or anything like that. I, all I knew how to do was photography. And so I worked my ass off because I didn't want to have any other kind of job. And, uh, you know, it was also, you know, out of prison at that point, just for a couple of years, I was in jail in the in 1983 for possession of LSD with intent to distribute. And I knew I didn't want to go back to jail. And so, you know, selling drugs wasn't an option. You know, now you guys all sell drugs legally, (laughs) or at least pot, you know. Um, But, you know, back then, you know, even that could put you in jail for 10 or 15 years. And so, you know, I worked as hard as I possibly could and started showing my photography to different magazines and record companies in 87. I got my first assignment from Rolling Stone magazine shooting the free U2 concert in downtown San Francisco. Uh, You can see it in Rattle and Hum, the movie. And, you know, since then, I've done over 300 assignments for Rolling Stone magazine and started getting work probably by 88, 89. I was shooting for BAM magazine, which was a Bay Area music magazine, started shooting covers for them, I think, in 89. My first one was Camper Van Beethoven down in Santa Cruz. Started getting assignments from Guitar Player magazine. I think I shot my first cover in 19... It's either 89 or 90, and that was with Michael Hedges, the late, great Michael Hedges. Uh, so I was just... I was a working photojournalist, and by, you know, also at that time, the late 80s, 89, 88, 89, 90, was the birth of alternative rock, and you know, I couldn't make a living just shooting the Grateful Dead because the mainstream media really didn't care about the Grateful Dead. Yeah, they cared a little bit about Touch of Grey for a hot minute. Um, and I got an assignment here from Rolling Stone and an assignment there that revolved around the Grateful Dead. But, um, I mean, in general, I was out there shooting bands like Soundgarden and, and, and Jane's Addiction and the Pixies and Nirvana and stuff like that, because those are the bands that magazines were interested in pictures of, and that would actually pay me money. So that was sort of the beginning of my career. You know, it really, really started in 86 and 87 in terms of um, getting a lot more assignments and getting people to pay me, you know, instead of $200, $400 or $500 to shoot something. And, you know, by by the, you know, mid-90s, I was shooting a lot of you know, big advertising jobs and some corporate stuff and dot-com stuff here in the Bay Area that was exploding. And, you know, all of a sudden people are starting to pay you $2,000 a day and $5,000 a day and $10,000 a day. And and that stuff doesn't really exist anymore. Like that whole, that whole business sort of disappeared for a number of reasons. But, you know, uh, let's just say that, you know, technology is the great disruptor. And, uh, you know, technology has disrupted, you know, the photography, film, and music business probably more than any other industry. Um, Obviously, well, computers and and whatnot, but, you know, and so, you know, everybody has a camera in their pocket, and we live in a world of mediocrity created by social media. And so if somebody can pay somebody $200 for a crappy photo instead of paying somebody $2,000 for a really good photo, they might just settle for that crappy photo for 200 bucks. So it's sort of decimated an industry. So, um, yeah, I appreciate your comment on the, the fear factor as somebody who's been self-employed since I was 26. 
Uh, fear was always a great motivator for me because I also never wanted to be a, a corporate accountant or work for a big accounting firm. But um, sort of a personal question, um, did you wear earplugs and how was your hearing today being that close to all those speakers? Uh, in the early days, I did not. Um, I definitely damaged my hearing. I can actually pinpoint the exact show. I shot a band called Living Color, Vernon Reed, whose amp was, you know, turned up to 24, uh, in, right in front of his amp for a whole show at the I-Beam, which was a really funky alternative rock nightclub on Heat Street in San Francisco, and uh, right in the Haight-Ashbury. And uh, my ears were ringing for about six days after that. Um, I have worn earplugs on and off over the years since then, uh, uh, for many, many years, mostly on. Uh, and that's because I was aware of the fact that I was ruining my hearing and I was, and I was up close to a lot of these artists, but you know, you have bands like Dead & Co today and their technology and their sound system, which is, you know, Meyer sound speakers and ultrasound. You know, it's funny, back in the days of the Grateful Dead, like you could be at a dead show and the volume was absolutely perfect standing in front of their stack, stack of speakers, which again were Meyer sound speakers and ultrasound speakers. And you could probably even talk to the person next to you, but you weren't like talking saying, the music's not loud enough. It was perfect, but they knew how to control it and the technology that the speakers had achieved. And I, I, I really don't, you know, I go to a lot of concerts and I listen to a lot of stuff and I truly believe that you know Meyer sound systems are the best sounding sound systems because you can be in front of a Meyer sound system and you can listen without earplugs right in front of those speakers and it's still pushing out a, a, a high enough volume i was not right in front of the speakers but i did see the shows on december 27th and 28th at the la forum uh -huh. and that sound was absolutely absolutely pristine sound yeah, I mean, the, you know, the Grateful Dead have been using Meyer speakers for decades, and uh, and they know how to use them. You know, their sound guy, Derek Featherstone, is incredible. So anyway, you know, like I remember being at a, a, a music festival, and they did not have a Meyer sound system, and they were just pushing it out, and it was so loud that it was punishing for everybody that was in the front because they felt like they had to push it so hard and so loud for it to reach the back of the festival. And it's just like anybody that was in the first, you know, 100 feet literally was being punished like you know sledgehammer to the forehead loud anyway but no my hearing is my hearing is you know it's it's been it's been touched it's been compromised um but i still think that i'm okay i have a hard time in like loud rooms with a lot of people chattering and you know different situations um if i'm not facing somebody or somebody's you know uh talk like standing in front of me and we're walking and they're talking facing forward i might not be able to hear them things like that hey jay what when, what what opened the door for you to really get into the role that you now currently have with the dead what when did that happen where you kind of joined the family as it were well i mean i really didn't start really working for the band until you know the the till the end of the grateful dead i mean the first time that a grateful dead band member paid me money to photograph them was in 1990 uh, I did some portraits of Bob Weir and Rob Wasserman because that's when they were first forming the Weir Wasserman duo, and so I start and I was working with Rob Wasserman who was making a couple of different records. I think he was working on trios at the time, and when Weir said let's start this little acoustic duo thing, Bob and Rob, um, Wasserman's manager said, hey, Jay Blakesburg can do the publicity photos, and they were like, sure. And so right after that, you know, then Bob needed a photo for a, a, a children's book that he wrote with his sister. He needed an author photo. I did that. He did a second children's book with his sister. I did an author photo for that. 
uh, you know, so I just started doing a lot of stuff with Bob and then eventually I connected with Mickey's people and Mickey was working on a, a planet drum type thing with Baba Olatunji and Zakir and Giovanni Hidalgo and, uh, Armando Parasa. And so Mickey hired me for that. Uh, but it really wasn't until post Jerry that <clears throat> I got hired by the guys in fish when they were doing a run with Phil at the Warfield when it was Phil and friends with Trey and Paige. Oh, right. And, uh, and and that's when I really met Phil and became friends with Phil and started doing all this work with Phil. And then I was doing all this work with Bob. And then, you know, they did the other ones and they needed a publicity photo and they called me. Was that when Phil first came back after his surgery? I don't remember if it was. It was in April of 99. I don't actually remember if that was right after that or what, the, you know, the, the timeline on, you know, versus his, his liver transplant. But, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, so, you know, and then, when the you know when the core four guys, you know Bob, Billy, Mickey, Bobby, Phil would get together, you know Grateful Dead Productions would hire me because I was a professional photographer, you know, and a lot of people that came and went through that camp, you know maybe they said they were professional photographers and maybe they had a real camera, but they didn't know how to do studio lighting, they didn't do studio portraiture. I mean the guy that did that for the Grateful Dead for the longest time was Herbie Green. And uh, Herbie had moved to the East Coast, and so, you know, it wasn't like we're going to fly in Herbie to do a shot of, of, you know, the other ones, or Further, or Phil and Friends, or, you know, whatever it might be, Seven Walkers, and I just sort of became the default guy because I was still there, you know. Uh, it's funny, I did an interview earlier today with Big Steve Parrish for his Sirius XM show, and we were talking about the same exact thing that, you know, it was sort of like the last man standing, you know. And they liked me and they could trust me. And so I became that guy that could, you know, they had needs and I could fulfill those needs. Those needs were to get good publicity photos. And I was able to take those good publicity photos and I was trusted by them and they knew me and they liked me and, you know, they knew they could have me around and, and I wouldn't, wouldn't go bad on them and could get the job done and be creative. And so that's sort of how I fell into that role post Jerry. Very, very interesting. And you talk about that skill set of lighting and studio portraits. Were you self-taught or did someone teach you that? Did you go to school for it? I am self-taught. Yes. Um, when I first, so when I first started shooting back in the eighties, at first I was, um, mostly just a live concert photographer. Like a lot of people still are today. It's actually interesting, you know, with the advent of the digital camera, everybody just is like, yeah, I just, you know, shoot with a flash on my camera. You know, nobody takes the time to really learn, you know, at least a lot of concert photographers. But when I would open up a magazine like Rolling Stone magazine, you know, a band would be on the cover. It'd be a portrait. You'd open up to the story and there'd be a big, another portrait of the band that would be the lead photo. And then you flip the page and then there'd be like one small live shot of the band. Right. And those live shots from Rolling Stone or whatever magazine was paid maybe 150 or $200 whereas a cover shoot might pay $1,500, $2,500, $3,500, you know, and I was like, okay, so if I'm going to actually make a living, I need to learn how to shoot cover photos. And if I'm going to shoot cover photos, I actually need to learn how to do studio lighting. So I went out and bought a really small little off, you know, off-camera flash strobe on a light stand. And I said, okay, if I plant my light stand here and point it in this direction with this type of diffusion on it, what happens if I move it over here? What happens if I add a warming gel to it? What happens? And I just started experimenting and shooting everybody that I could and every band and made a lot of mistakes and eventually taught myself how to do a really good job lighting people. And uh, it's all about shadow and highlights and drama, right? To, to bring out the essence of, 
you know, the person sitting in front of you as opposed to just like a flatly lit, boring photograph of somebody just sitting there. And so, yes, I am self-bought. Absolutely fascinating and, and so insightful. And we want to be respectful of your time. Um, so as we sort of come to the end of this time slot, I'd like to open it up a little bit because this is the uh, Deadhead Cannabis Show. Um, what about your relationship with, with marijuana? For me, it just feels so good today that I can travel and not be worried about being arrested. Um, if I'm flying from one state where it's legal to another, um, I'm comfortable flying with it, uh, a little marijuana with me. Uh, what is um, your relationship then, or do you still enjoy it? The last time I smoked marijuana was in 1981, uh, so that would be 39 years ago. Now, I accidentally ate some um, chocolate chip cookies backstage at a show, not a dead show, but something else, and got really messed up. Um, I think that my daughter forced me to take a couple of hits of marijuana in Amsterdam a few years ago, and I think I was lying on the ground in the hotel room, uh, passed out about 20 minutes later. Um, no, I don't smoke pot. I'm, I have no interest in it. I know that it's legal. I know that it's prevalent. I know that it's really strong. I know that people really like it. I know there's all sorts of brands and flavors and strengths and sativas and this and that, but I just don't have any interest in it. You know, I stopped smoking pot a long time ago because I didn't, I, I stopped enjoying it. I was a big pothead in the seventies and the early eighties, you know, in 1980 and 81. And I just was like, you know what? I just am not enjoying this. And I stopped. And, um, you know, that's just me, you know, more power to you. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, I have a, like a, a, a number of friends that are big pot growers and I've been to their farms and I've photographed plants that yield 10 pounds of killer pot in Southern Oregon. And, and, uh, I like the art and I like the smell of pot that's, um, fresh, you know, I like that smell of, of good pot, but I don't smoke it and I don't have any interest and I don't vape and I don't take edibles. And I have done some, you know, negative THC CBD just to see, you know, put some salve on my arms or my back. But I think it's great that people can rely on that because I know there are medicinal uses for it that are very helpful to a lot of people, um, people that are dying, people that have cancer, people that are doing treatments, um, chemo treatments, nausea, you know, I joke, I have friends that are in the delivery business and the growing business, and I I joke with them all the time that, you know, they're just a bunch of dope dealers, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's it's all good. I have no problem with it. All right. Well, thank you um, very much for these very personal insights. I think Larry has one more question for you. I do. First of all, Kim and I were talking about this before we started, and, you know, the problem with this kind of an interview is that there's so many things we want to ask a guy like you that we just can't possibly get to all of them. So one of the things we're hoping is is that uh, we can possibly have you on again in the future. Sure. If you think there's if you think there's more to talk about, but let's talk about my book a little bit because we never even got to that. And then how about if you finish your last question? Let's hear about it, please. So in the fall of 2019, I put out a book called Jerry Garcia's Secret Space of Dreams, and John Nair wrote the foreword for it, and it's an incredible, incredible essay that he wrote. You know, it, it, I knew that it would be a little bit controversial, and, and uh, you know, there's been one or two people that have said, John Nair, what's he doing writing a book, an essay or an, a foreword for a book on Jerry Garcia? But when I asked John to write it, I said, I'm looking for you to write an essay, a foreword, 
from the perspective of, an, of a guitar player, a very successful guitar player, a very talented guitar player, and also someone who's now playing these songs on a regular basis, and these songs are important to him, and what they mean, and what they do, and what they mean to the fans. And so John wrote an essay, sent it to me. When the book came out, I gave him a copy of it backstage at uh, the Garden, maybe it was. I can't remember. Um, Halloween could have been somewhere sooner than that. I don't remember. But anyway, I gave it to him. He said, oh, great. I can't wait to read the forward. I want to see if it's going to make me cry again because when I finished it, it made me cry. And you want to know what? It made me cry also. And you want to know what? About a month ago, two months ago, it so all of a sudden made its way on social media. Like, have you guys seen this essay that John, like some people didn't even know it came from my book. People were like, have you seen this essay that John Mayer wrote about Jerry Garcia? Like, yes, it's from Jay Blakesburg's new book, you know, Jerry Garcia's Secret Space of Dream. And it is just truly unbelievable. David Gans wrote um, the, fo- the introduction for the book, longtime historian, deadhead. Trixie Garcia, Jerry's daughter, wrote an essay. And Dave Schools from Widespread Panic, who's also a huge deadhead, wrote the afterword. And he's just incredible. Throughout the book, there's quotes by people like Dave Schools and Trey Anastasio and David Crosby and um, uh, Jerry Garcia, you know, I, I found great quotes from all the band members on the internet, um, because they've all have said great stuff about Jerry. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a really solid book. I'm proud of it. I think the photos are great. I think that, uh, the response has been phenomenal. I'm going to say that, uh, pretty much everybody that's seen it, um, loves it. Uh, I'm sure there are naysayers out there because that's, you know, the way of the world where people like to live hiding behind their computers instead of out there at shows, connecting with other like-minded people who are into the same kind of scene and the same music. But And if you want to order the book directly from me and get a signed, personalized copy, you can go to my website, which is www.rockoutbooks.com. You can also, of course, order it on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. You can walk into pretty much any bookstore in the U.S. Uh, so anywhere that fine books are sold, you can get a copy of Jerry Garcia's Secret Space of Dreams. Well, Jay, I think... I can verify for all of our listeners, because when I was in uh, San Francisco earlier this year, uh, you were kind enough to provide me with a copy. People all like the Grateful Dead for various reasons. I'm a Jerry guy, always was, always will be. And uh, one of the things that was missing was something like this book that really, you know, for the Jerry files out there, uh, it, it's wonderful. And you're right. The essays are amazing. And um, I, I will confess that it's taken me a while to warm up, uh, you know, to John Mayer in that role, not, for any other reason, just that, you know, it's, it's not Jerry. And so it's, you, you got to get used to it. Um, but I've really been impressed by him and, and uh, it was great to see the, the, the thoughts that he could share on Jerry and how that, you know, really helped shape him and kind of gave me new respect for him. And the next time I saw dead and company, I was like, okay, this is, uh, this is John. This is where he's at. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, so that's basically my book and, you know, go out and support the art, support, you know, a, a fine art photographer who happens to love the Grateful Dead and shoot the Grateful Dead. And, you know, this is how I make a living is by, you know, people, you know, I put stuff out there on social media all the time. I share my photography on Instagram, which is at Jay Blakesburg, and I share it on Facebook at uh, Jay Blakesburg Photography. Uh, I share it freely, and I don't ask anything from anybody, but when I do put out a book, I appreciate when people buy it because that is how I pay my bills and support my family and, you know, um, you know, get to do what I do. So, um, if, if it's something that you like and you like holding a coffee table book 
as opposed to just staring at photos on a computer screen, please go out and get this. And if you go to my website, Rock Out Books, you'll see all, you'll see all the other books. I did a book called Eyes of the World that came out two years ago, which uh, I published with my publishing company and also co-edited with a guy named Josh Barron, who used to be an editor at Relics Magazine. And that book is The Grateful Dead from 1965 to 1995. It has 60 different photographers in it, including Annie Leibovitz and Jim Marshall, Baron Woolman, Peter Simon, Jay Blakesburg, uh, Ed Perlstein. Uh, it's got all the, you know, Gene Anthony. It's got all the classic uh, photographers in there and a lot of never-before-seen photos. And it spans their whole career. I put that out two years ago. And before that, I did my Guitars That Jam book. And before that, I did my Hippie Chick book. And before that, I did that, I did my Traveling on a High Frequency book. And people have bought these books, and that's what keeps me going. And I love to share my work as opposed to just leaving it in a shoebox or, you know, just staring on the computer screen. Since you mentioned John Mayer, one of the big things that happened in the dead world over the past year uh, was the Dead & Company show at City Field this past summer, I think it was. And besides the fact that it was a great show, I think that one of the highlights may have been a highlight of the whole Dead & Company scene was that for the show there, uh, John played Jerry's Wolf guitar. And for the people who know Jerry and his guitars, that's one of his uh, very, very famous guitars. And, and when I was with you earlier this year, you were kind enough to share with me the story. You, know, you actually played a role in this happening. I'm wondering if you could just give our listeners a, a quick rundown on how that all came to be. Sure. So in, in August of 2017, four of Jerry's primary guitars, Wolf, Tiger, Rosebud, and Travis Bean, that's the one he played in 77 with all those legendary shows, were all on display at Red Rocks for the Jerry Garcia 75th birthday celebration. And when I was at that show, I said to John, hey, do you want to check out one of these guitars? You want to hold it? You want to play it? You want to, you want to get a picture with it? And he's like, no. I'm like, I can bring it to your dressing room and nobody needs to see you doing it. He's like, no. You know, he was very, very sensitive and very self-aware of his place in the script. And, you know, he was still earning the trust of deadheads two years into the band at that point. And he just didn't want to do it. Uh, uh, fast forward to uh, this past March of 2019, John called me and said, I've been having this idea that maybe I should try and play Wolf at a show or maybe on a whole tour. And I know that you're the guy that can make it happen. And so Wolf is owned by a guy, uh, a tech company, a tech company owner on the East Coast, and I happen to be friends with that person, but I'm better friends with the guy who's his best friend, who is what we call the Wolf Handler, and that guy's name is David Meerman Scott. David's a very famous author, uh, writing and talking about uh, social media and and how um, how it affects all of us. And so I called David immediately and said, John is interested in playing Wolf on the summer tour. And David said, ooh, that's great, but in about 10 days, Wolf is going to go to the Metropolitan Museum in New York for this big uh, rock and roll musical instrument exhibit. And I said, okay, but also John said he won't play it on tour unless he can play it in advance uh, because he can't just go cold and say, bring it to the show, bring it to the tour. He's got to try it out. And Wolf just happened to be in San Francisco. So I was on the East Coast doing a book tour, actually, and uh, uh, I got I arranged for Wolf to to get on an airplane and fly down to L.A. and it was brought to John. And the other thing is is that John was getting ready to leave to go on tour with his band three days later in Australia. So we had about three days to make this happen, and then a week after that, it was going to go to the museum and be locked in a glass case until for six months. 
So we got the guitar down there. John played it. He freaked out. He called me on the phone later that day. I was driving from Macon, Georgia to Atlanta, Georgia, uh, about 10 or 11 o'clock at night, my time on the East Coast. So he was in L.A. And uh, he was just freaking out. And he said, let's do it. And so David Scott, David Muirman Scott, got permission from the museum to let it go, got permission from the owner to let it go. And uh, and then it was getting very complicated uh, again, John, very, very self-aware individual. He's like, you know what? I don't want to play this on the whole tour because I don't want that much attention on me and the guitar because it's about this band. It's about Bobby. It's about Billy. It's about Mickey. It's about O'Teal. It's about Jeff. So I would like to just play this guitar just in New York city at city field because then they could just go get the guitar at the museum the day of bring it over. We'll change the strings. I can play it. And the next day it's back at the museum and then we don't have to worry about, you know, private security and an armored truck for the next, you know, three months while we're on tour or whatever it was, two months. Uh, and so we all thought that was a great idea. We got the museum to sign off on it and it was brought to John at city field. He grabbed it, went into his dressing room. He noodled around with it. We took some photos and uh, he came out and he crushed it. And we kept it a really, really good secret. Very, very few people knew that this was going to happen. Uh, and after the whole deal was sort of uh, put in place and everything was locked down and set in stone, uh, we went out. At that point is when we started telling all the band managers. Now, John had asked the band, Bob and, and Billy and Mickey, what they thought, you know, way back in March. And they were like, yeah, sure, no problem, whatever you want to do. Like, they were just fine with it. Uh, and so uh, a few weeks, three, four, five weeks, six weeks maybe before the tour, I started letting the band management know because they needed to be in on it. And they were about the only ones that know. And I'm sure you know the story about you know Bobby's manager, Matt, who helps with all the set lists every night. And I wanted him to know because I wanted him to write, you know, specific songs into that set list. And my only suggestion was Morning Dew. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm already on that. Without a doubt, that's going to happen. Because uh, he wanted to hear John Mayer on Wolf Guitar play Morning Dew also, just like I did and just like I knew everybody else would. And so he put that on the set list, and that's how the show ended. And John just absolutely crushed it. And uh, I have the photo of those peak moments at the very, very end of the song. And uh, I think that everybody was pretty damn excited uh, by the whole thing, including John and including the fans. And um, that was it. That was John there playing Wolf at City Field with Denico on June 23rd, 2019. And I, of course, heard that and see videos of it, but how did it sound up close? Amazing. I was, I was on the stage right in front of John, right next to Jeff's piano, you know, for that that morning do for that last solo was incredible. And one last question, and maybe you don't know, but you talked about an armored truck. What do you think Wolf is worth? It's worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for it, like any asset like that. But uh, I believe the guy who bought it, the, the guy who owned it before that was a guy named Dan Pritzker. <clears throat> and Dan bought it, I believe, for just under a million dollars, whenever that was. I don't know how many years ago. And, and Dan let Wolf out to play. You know, Chris Robinson played it. Neil Casal played it. Ryan Adams played it. You know, there was a bunch of people that played it over the years. And then he decided to sell it and donate 100% of the proceeds. <clears throat> he didn't even get his investment back. <clears throat> back excuse me. <clears throat> he donated 100% of the proceeds to the Southern Poverty Law Center. I don't know if you know that. 
And so they put it up for auction, and I believe it sold for $1.4 million. And with all the fees and everything and percentages and auction house stuff and so on and so forth, I believe it came out to one seven or one eight, somewhere in that range. I'm not exactly positive. If it went up for auction tomorrow, would it sell for that much money again? I think so. You know, would it sell for more? Maybe. Uh, hard to say. But, you know, that's what it sold for. And so what's it worth? I don't know. $1.7 million, I guess. Well, once again, thank you for your generous time with us this afternoon, this evening here in Denver. And um, I think we'll go ahead and sign off. Yeah. Uh, Jay, thank you so much. Um, we may reach out to you again some point in the future because I've got a list here of about 20 other questions I want to ask you, and you've been more than generous with your time today. Sure. Let, let's, let's re, we'll revisit in a, in a year. How's that sound? I love that. Perfect. That's perfect. We'll do it right after playing in the sand next year. We can make it an annual thing, even better. <laughs> so our guest today was Jay Blakesburg, rock photographer extraordinaire with the Grateful Dead, Fish, the whole jam band scene. Um, please go to his uh, his website. Uh, what, what was the website again, Jay? Rockoutbooks.com. Please go there. Please check out his books. If you're a Grateful Dead fan, you have to go see this new Jerry Garcia book. It is outstanding, and we can't recommend it enough. So thank you for everything, Jay. Thank you. Appreciate it, you guys. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Larry. And uh, we'll talk soon. Over and out from the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you soon. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon and I'm Saba and we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while we break it all down.